Get your Bibles and open to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I'm going to warn you up front that, uh, like most of our sermons, but maybe more than usual, this is a Scripture-saturated sermon. So be ready to turn from Scripture to Scripture to keep up, and, uh, but just know that up front. Psalm 22. This is God's Word. Holy, perfect, true. If you follow this, you will never be led astray. Hear the reading of God's Word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and read a portion of this psalm, which we will continue later. We're reminded as we've sung these gospel hymns this morning that you are God. You are a God who sees, you are a God who cares, you are a God who loves, you are a God who saves. Your arm is not too short. You sent your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, for us. He came and He bore our sins upon the tree. He bore your wrath there as well. He was killed. He died, laid in a tomb, and raised on Sunday. And it's because of this we praise your holy name and glorify your beautiful Son. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes to the truth of this good news, which we refer to as gospel. Lord, we are your resurrection people. Lord, may you continue to do your resurrection miracles today in the life of any who are still dead in their sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, Jesus utters these words of anguish from the cross and also directs believers back to the psalm of David written a thousand years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think both things are happening here, a cry of anguish and a direction back to Look at this psalm, which is a prophetic messianic psalm. Only a few days before, 
Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! On Thursday night, our Lord gathered with his disciples, his closest friends, and he demonstrated his great love for them by washing their feet. Their Lord, their Master, the King of the universe, takes off his robe and wraps himself with a towel and washes his disciples' feet. The job given to a lowly servant is what our Master does. He then observed Passover with them, remembering the deliverance of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They remembered how God delivered each family by the sacrifice of a lamb with his blood spread upon the doorpost so that the wrath of God would pass over them. He then sent his betrayer, Judas, into the night. He instituted his last supper with his disciples, which we refer to as communion. He prayed for his disciples. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. He warned them of what was to come. And then he went with a few of them to Gethsemane and spent his last hours as a free man in earnest, devoted prayer to his father. He was arrested, tried, beaten, tortured, and finally hung upon a Roman cross. There he would die and later be laying in a tomb. We echo this morning our Savior's cry. Why? Why? Let's let the Apostle Paul help us this morning with this question. And so if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Early in Romans, the apostle reminds us in Romans 1, 16 through 17, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on in that chapter to show how God's Wrath is coming upon all men because why? None of us are righteous. None of us are righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may think to yourself, maybe I can live uh, by my good deeds. Maybe that's the way I'm going to, to live. It's by works. If you look at chapter 4, he begins there. Verse uh, 1, starting in chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? We're talking of Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham, who God came and promised uh, uh, many things to, the new covenant to, to Abraham. This is Abraham who had no children at this time. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If we're saved by our good works, then there's nothing really to be thankful for, is it? I get paid each month working for Long Beach Unified School District. I don't go into my principal. I don't think she's here this morning. I invited her, but I haven't seen her. I don't go in every month and say, oh, with my check stub and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're so gracious to pay me what you owe me. <laughs> we work for our wages. It's not a gift. It's what is coming to us. And the apostle says, look, Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, it's due him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Well, maybe the way to righteousness is maybe, maybe it's not through works. Maybe it's through my ethnicity. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Is this blessing, this righteousness that comes from God only by ethnicity or by being circumcised, by being a Jew? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? The apostle says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our, favor, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So it's not your works that saves you. It's not your circumcision that saves you. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. So maybe it's keeping the law, keeping the law perfectly, but through the righteousness of faith, not through the law, but through the righteousness of the faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What the apostle is saying here is, yes, the law, is, is the law bad? No, the law is good. The law is gracious. The law is how we know that we are sinners. But we can't keep the law to earn our salvation. If you don't believe that, try keeping it for a few minutes. Try to do everything you shouldn't do in one day and everything you should do in one day. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. Faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Remember, Abraham was a hundred years old. Hope against hope. He believed that this God who could call into existence those things that were not in, in, in existence, he could make things uh, appear, he could make things, create things out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I don't know how many of you 100-year-olds have tried to have kids lately. Uh, Redeem would be a good place to try, though. <laughs> Since he was. That's, a, that's an aside. That's uh, I and not the Lord say that. Since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He knew that the promises of God were what he was resting on, not his works, not his law-keeping, not his circumcision fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then here's the verses we're going to camp on for the rest of this sermon. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also.
It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Martin Luther said this about these three verses. In these verses, the whole of Christianity is comprehended. You have within these verses the gospel. The whole gospel is right there. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is a religion of resurrection. It is a a religion of resurrection. And today I'm going to show you out of these passages six great truths that if you're not a believer today could make this the best Easter ever. And for, for those of us who believe in Christ, it'll just make it even better to be reminded of what we have in Christ. Truth number one, God credits righteousness to believers. God credits righteousness to believers. Verses 23 and 24, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord. Later, Paul will say in Romans 4, 5 through 6, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who's that? That's, that's John Muckey, right? That's Dave. That's Lauren. That's Pastor Jeff Lewis. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, who speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, God takes the righteousness of his son and credits it, 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 he credits it, I can't say, credits it to us who believe. It's counted toward us. Through this passage, over and over again, he says, it's counted, it's counted, it's credited. I remember hearing uh, when I was in college, I think my dad told me this. A young man was off at college, and he ran out of money, and so he wrote a note back to his dad. Today it would be a Twitter, right, or it would be an email. Back then he wrote a, wrote a little card and sent it off to his dad. It said, no mun, no fun, your son. And his dad wrote back, too bad, so sad, your dad. (laughs) I can remember getting my first checking account when I went to college. Got your checkbook. A checkbook, it's a thing, children, that uh, you put, you know, you write things and it's not like magic, bling, oh, money, it comes from out of the, somewhere. No, it's a checkbook. And uh, my mother sent me down and trained me how to use my checkbook. I wasn't too smart about that. So... I wasn't keeping my register very well. My wife is cringing because she probably remembers these days back in the, before she married me. And I, was, uh, I would just call the bank and say, how much money's in there? <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh, sure enough, of course, my account was uh, withdrawn, right? It was, it, I, I went over. I had no money there. And I called my dad. And I remember, I, I, had, I had no job. I had no money. I had nothing in there. My account was zero. It was actually not just zero. It was below zero. It was negative because I owed them money for for being overdrawn. My account was empty. There was nothing there. And it took someone else who had some money in their account to magically wire money into my account so that I could continue doing the things that college young men do, eat burgers and all that business. Take care of myself. Consider your account of righteousness. If righteousness and holiness and purity were your bank account, what would it be without Christ? Your holiness, your righteousness, if you look to see what's, what's, what's the level of my, of my righteousness in my bank account, it would, be, it would be zero. It would be not just zero, but below zero. You would be withdrawn. You would be, you would be negative. You would be underwater. And so what, what the apostle is telling us is that, is that with faith, God accounts to you righteousness. 
Christ's account is full of righteousness. And he credits that to us. God takes the righteousness of his son and credits, it, credits us to, to, to those who believe. Number two, God must be believed as the author of salvation. Look again at our, our passage. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Who's the him here? The him is God, God the Father. Believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Our salvation comes in the beginning with believing in God. That's where we start. I remember uh, one time sitting at my school in Wilmington as an as a elementary school teacher, and I was sitting with one of my fourth graders. And this fourth grader says, every once in a while, they'll ask these questions. They surprise you, and he, he says, Mr. Brian, um, where do we come from? Where do I come from? Okay, I think he's asking me at first birds and the bees questions, you know. And then I say, well, you know, you have a mother and a father, and, you know, they're married, and they love each other, and then you're a baby, and you're born. He's like, that's not what I mean. He says, he, he says that doesn't really answer it, does it? I remember this kid was like, like what? And he says that. That doesn't really answer it, does it? I go, well, uh, you know, and I start trying to go back and, and say, well, you were, you know, they came from your grandparents, and I keep going back, and every time I give him an answer, he'd say, that doesn't really answer it, does it? And he keeps asking me over until we finally get back to me finally saying, you came from God. And he goes, ah, that answers it, right? <laughs> I'm like, who is this kid, right? Little, little theologian in my fourth grade class. That answers it. God is the author of salvation. God is the author of salvation. He is the one who thought of it. He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who was the architect of it. How do you get to know an author? How do you get to know an author? You read his book, right? You read his book. Many of us have been around. I remember one time going to a, going to a, um, a fancy play in, in downtown Los Angeles with, a, with some friends of ours. And, and, and this one friend uh, thought of himself to be a real intellectual. And, uh, and he would love to have, we would have conversations and all these, you know, deep conversations things. And, and so we're going to see this, this, uh, this play. And um, so uh, Linda says, so what, what, you know, what, tell me something about the play. And he starts kind of going on and on. Well, you know, the, the producer only wears certain kind of clothing, and he does this and he does that. And he goes, he goes on and on and on, and she says, well, what's it about? Well, and he keeps going on and on, and finally she says, you don't know, do you? <laughs> He's like, no. Why? You haven't seen the play. You haven't read any of the guy's works. You're going on and on about this author who you know nothing about. God is the author of salvation. He is the author if you want to know God, if you want to know the author, you need to read his book. Read his book. Romans 10, 9 says this, But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe what? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That brings us to our third point. What did the author of salvation do? God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul tells us in verse 24b, us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. We believe in God, a God who raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 22, Acts 2, 22 to 24 says this, as Peter preaches, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. Look, you saw the works, you saw the signs, this man in your midst did these things, and you know it. You know it's true. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan and whose foreknowledge? God, the author. This is his plan. This is his story. 
This is the architect of our salvation. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But what? God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It, it, it just makes me think of, of, of all those old, you know, superhero, Superman, Batman, you know, the, all the bad guys pile on, pile on, pile on. They wrap him up and they wrap him up with ropes and everything. And all of a sudden is there's boom, right? Off go the bad guys. Demons go this way, that way, right? The pangs of death. These ropes are burst and up stands our hero, Jesus Christ. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the proclamation of God, that this is his son. This is my beloved son. He has been raised from the dead. He is, yes, fully human, fully man, and he is fully God. Acts 3, 13 through 15, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our four... The God of our four the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and, de and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate validation that Jesus is the Son of God. Every other religious leader is dead and in the grave. Muhammad is dead. Name any other one. Shout out any names. I mean, who are any other religious leaders? Mary Baker Eddy, you know, Joseph Smith. They're all dead and in the grave. They've all turned to dust. Only one religious leader, who is Jesus our Lord, is alive and reigning and ruling in heaven even now. I remember one time listening to, uh, I don't know why they were asking this great philosopher, Madonna, what she believed, <laughs> but uh, someone was asking her about something, and, she, and her response was this. She was looking at some great injustice, and she said, uh, if Jesus were alive, he wouldn't approve of this. What's wrong with that statement? Jesus is alive, you fool, and truly the fool has said in her heart that there is no God, right? If Jesus were alive, she thought she was being so enlightened and so wise. No, Jesus is alive. As I said before, Christianity is a religion of resurrection, and our Savior is alive. Acts 2.32, this Jesus, God, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 30. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must do what? We must obey God rather than men. Notice when they tell him, stop preaching about him, stop talking about him, stop it, just stop it. They don't just say, you're right, let's just go home, you're right. No, they say, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. The resurrection, brothers and sisters, the resurrection demands that we obey God. When the government tells us to stop worshiping, we say... We obey the risen Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're still here. That's why we stayed open, because a risen Savior is worth worshiping, isn't he? Acts 13, 28 through 39. And though they found, him in, uh, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But... God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. Acts 17, 30, 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Why, friend, should you repent of your sins? Why should you turn your back on your unbelief and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is the risen judge. Your judge is alive and well, and every single one of us will be resurrected. Every single one of us will be resurrected, and we will face Him. And so today, if you have yet to put your hope and trust in Christ, you need to do that very thing today. You need to repent of your sin because the righteous judge has risen. God raises this judge from the dead, and you will not be able to escape. Number four, God delivered Jesus unto death. God delivered Jesus unto death. Romans 4, 25, again, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Romans 8, 31, 32 tells us this very thing. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The most famous scripture that probably anyone knows, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Who killed Jesus? The Romans, the Jews, the crowd as they cried, crucify him, crucify him? No. We see, yes, they were, God used them. God uh, used them for his purposes, but ultimately he, by his own foreknowledge and plan, sent Christ to be an atoning sacrifice for all of his children, for his blessed bride. Number five, God designed that Jesus would die for our sins. God designed that Jesus would die for our sins. Again, back to verse 25, it says, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for what? Just to die? No, he was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up for our trespasses. There's a reason that he died. He died for our trespasses or our transgression or our sin. You think about a trespass or trespassing. It's going where you're not allowed to go to go where you're not allowed to go. It's crossing boundaries that God has placed there. You don't go here. And a trespasser goes over that boundary. He or she goes where they're not allowed to go. It reminded me of being in the Grand Canyon a few years back. And uh, we go there and we, you, I mean, you know, it's, it's more than just a big hole in the ground, isn't it? <laughs> Those of us who go there, you look and you're like, oh my goodness, it's, it's amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It's it's, it's fantastic. But one of the most amazing things to me when we were there was that they had a big sign at this one area. Some places have some rails, right? Some guardrails that are up there. But other places, there's not. And you can kind of walk up and get pretty close. And there's a big sign, an orange sign that says in all these languages, warning, achtung, uh, whatever else is warning in another language, right? That's all I know, achtung. <laughs> so all these warnings, be careful in Irish, okay? Uh, so it says all these things in other languages, and then it says, and it has, it shows a person like falling off a cliff, you know, ah, uh, you know, and it says, warning, people have died here, standing too close to the edge. Not people may die here, people have died here. Those people saw the warning and they trespassed. They went beyond the boundary. God has, in His richness, in His wisdom, has given us the law. He showed us these are the boundaries of where we ought not go. But Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up for our transgression, for our iniquity, for our sin. And one of the best places that tells us about that is Isaiah 52 and 53. Flip with me over there if you would. Isaiah 52, starting with verse 13, the servant song. Another messianic passage that over and over again we see the clarity of the gospel and specifics 
of Christ's crucifixion in here and tells us the theology of why, why God gave him over, why he delivered him up for us. Listen, Isaiah 52, starting with verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they may see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friend, God the Father took the sins of all who would believe in his Son, and he placed them upon the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake... For you and for me, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak. This is something we've got to understand, right? Jesus, God doesn't wait till you get your act together. So many people think, I'm going to try to get my act together, then I'll become a Christian. I'm a bad person. Then I'll, you know, I'll, get, I'll start being good. Then I'll become a Christian. You can't get from bad to good without becoming a Christian. You've got to have the righteousness of Christ. And look at, look at the wisdom of God. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were Still sinners, Christ died for us. Number six, God was satisfied with Jesus' death for our sins. Back to our passage that we've grounded this teaching in. But for ours also, also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word for here really should be read because of our justification. Because of our justification. Romans 3, 24, 25 says this, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation 
by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation or to be propitiated is, is, is the word satisfied. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God for us in his body on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied the justice of God by dying there for our sin. The other night, uh, usually it's our tradition, we don't have a, uh, during, during Easter, during the Passion Week, for us to watch some Easter movies, right? And so the other night we were watching uh, The Passion. And uh, it is a, um, it's a hard to watch movie, it really is. It is. It's difficult to watch. We don't watch it every year. We'll kind of intersperse it with some other uh, Jesus movies about the, cro- the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection. But as we were watching it, we were talking about the physical torment, and we were reminded that as horrible as the physical torment was, that was nothing compared to the spiritual torment of Christ on the cross. You see, it's, Jesus isn't unique in just dying a horrible death. Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans during that time, and thousands more and millions have, have, have died torturous deaths. If it's just about the death, then all that Jesus is is a martyr. All that he is is a martyr. But no, Jesus bore our sin upon the tree. He experienced the wrath of the Father. In those three hours from 12 to 3, God treated him as if all the sins that the elect had ever sinned were put upon him, and he punished him there. That's the chastisement that brought us peace as Isaiah says, it was the spiritual torment as he bore the Father's wrath for sinners like me, sinners like like you. But you understand, your sin is against God. I heard someone talking about this a few weeks ago, and he said, he said if, 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 if a couple of brothers are messing around, right, um, and, 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 and in their playing, you know, they're kind of wrestling. And at some point, one brother gets a little angry, another brother gets a little angry. And, and all of a sudden, one of them kind of, you know, they kind of, you know, lose track of who's who and what's what. And one of them smacks the other one, right? Slaps the other one because he gets upset. Once he gets slapped, he yells out, Mom, right? And Mom comes in. And then the offending brother slaps Mom. What do you think is worse? Slapping the brother or slapping the mother? Mom gets upset because he's out of control. He won't settle down, so she calls the police. The policeman shows up. The policeman walks in, and the, and the same kid then goes and slaps the policeman. Do you understand? The exact same act given toward different people is different. Brothers and sisters, when we gossip when we lie, when we harbor bitterness, anger, when we lust, when we take the Lord's name in vain, we are slapping a holy God. Our sin is toward a holy God, and He must react properly toward that sin. It was the spiritual torment on the cross that Jesus bore for us. He took the Father's wrath for sinners like you and me. I grew up in Tornado Alley. We used to drive, I remember when I lived in Pottsboro, Texas, we would drive from our little house out in the country and we'd drive down this little, little road and we'd come down this long field and, and, and there in the middle of this field out in the country was a clawfoot tub just out in the middle of this field. It would always kind of freak me out. And my dad would tell me over and over again, we'd drive past and I'd say, look at that. It just, it's just a strange thing for a you know, four-year-old kid to look out or a five-year-old kid and say, why is there a clawfoot tub right in the middle of the field? And he'd say, well, son, that's, that's where there was a tornado. There used to be a house standing around that clawfoot tub. That's all that was left when the tornado came and took that house away. And the story was, was that the family had been saved who was in that tub. I read an, a news account a few years back of a woman in Indianapolis. Listen, it says an Indiana woman 
who saved her two children by binding them together with a blanket and shielding them with her body as a tornado ripped apart their house, lost parts of both her legs, which were crushed by the falling debris, her husband said Monday. Stephanie Decker, a 36-year-old sleep specialist, lost one leg above the knee and the other above the ankle, her husband said. She was in serious but stable condition at a Kentucky hospital Monday. The couple's 8-year-old son and 5-year-old daughter survived Friday's storm unscathed. I told her, the husband said, they're here because of you. I let her know that nothing else matters. I said, you're going to be here for your kids, and you get to see them grow up. Decker, 42, was at Silver Creek High School in Sellersburg when he, where he teaches al- algebra when the tornado hit. With storms expected, the school had been locked down, and he was debating whether to try to race home. Decker exchanged a series of texts with his wife, urging her to get herself and the children into the basement of their sprawling three-story brick home in Marysville. Then she sent me a text saying the whole house was shaking, and I texted her back and asked her if everything was okay. He said, I asked her about six or seven times and got no response. That frightened me. He said his wife told him later that she was in their walkout basement, which had French doors leading outside and a wall of windows when she saw the tornado approaching moving across the family's 15-acre plot. Stephanie Decker then tied a blanket around both her children and to herself, and she threw herself on top of the children. She said she felt the whole house start to go, and then she felt like it moved them about, like it kind of wedged her in there, but she was able to keep the kids from being sucked away. When the tornado passed, Stephanie Decker called to her children, who answered, and she told them, that she was going to be okay. Every single mother in this auditorium would do the same thing. Stephanie Decker gave up her legs for her children. She kept them alive. How? She bore the wrath of the tornado. The wrath of the tornado passed over her children, but it did not pass over Stephanie Decker. How much more, brothers and sisters, the spiritual wrath of God, like those little children thrown into a bathtub, tied down, and our Savior throws himself over us and bears the wrath of his holy Father. He does it. He does it all for us. He does it all for us. And you know that for that woman's life, her whole life, when her children look at those prosthetic limbs that she now has, those will be her glory. They will always remind her of her great love for them. There will be no shame there. It will be glory because you gave your legs for me. Brothers and sisters, for all eternity, our Savior's glory are the scars that he bore for us as well. Well, Psalm 22 is where we started. With Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that psalm concludes. And there's a a turning. It goes from this sense of of dread and, and the sense of, forsakenness, and it turns. In that passage, listen, verse 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe, all you offspring of Israel. That's us. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. The Father, he's saying, the, the, the Father sees the torment of Christ. He's not hidden his face, but has heard him when he cried. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. 
And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. That's what we're doing right now. That's what we're doing right now. We are telling to this generation the greatness and goodness of our great God and his son, Jesus Christ. And he ends this way. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's who I'm talking to. The psalmist, David here, speaking of you, it will be proclaimed to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. He has done it. Beloved, he has done it. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy Resurrection Day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are a great God and the author of salvation. Lord, in your great wisdom, you desired, it seems to be, that you desired to give a redeemed humanity to your beloved Son a beautiful bride, which is your church. Lord, she was not beautiful in the beginning. She had no righteousness of her own. She was marred and sinful. But you saw fit to come to send your son. Jesus, you came. You obeyed your father in every way. You always glorified him. You did his will everywhere where we, where we have turned astray, have gone astray. Lord, you never did. And so you are the perfect Lamb of God. Lord, you came for us, you lived for us, you died for us, and you have been risen for us. And now you reign for us as well. Lord, we look forward to seeing you face to face. And truly, for those of us who have put our hope and trust in you, we can say, Happy Resurrection Day. Lord, we are a resurrected people and we look forward to our own resurrection because you have gone before us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. The elders will be here for anyone who needs prayer or to come to faith in Christ.